So we can appreciate that we have arrived. Here we are. And we don't need to worry about um, being tired tonight or whatever baggage we've brought from our lives, worries or exhaustion or expectations or challenges that we anticipate because we have a bad knee or somebody's on the retreat who pushes our buttons or uh, we don't like winter in Minnesota <laughs> or whatever it might be because uh, all of this stuff, I know it sounds like a cliche, maybe it is a cliche, but it's true. It's all grist for the mill. I remember a teacher once uh, saying, uh, because there's been over the years now quite a, I'm not sure what the right word is, but uh, a movement to talk about engaged Buddhism. And this term engaged Buddhism has sort of entered even popular culture, but definitely within the Buddhist communities. People talk about uh, engaged Buddhism as if there's something called not engaged Buddhism. <laughs> and it's really important for us to remember that coming on retreat together, all the efforts we've all made and others who aren't here have made to allow us to have this four-day community that we're creating together. And uh, it can seem superficially like maybe to some of your friends at home, you told them that you're going on a Buddhist meditation retreat, and they might think about it as a you know, very profound kind of disengagement from the world. But it's not that at all, actually. You know, we're here to fully, fearlessly engage our lived experience. And to whatever degree we've simplified our experience, our conditions, our circumstances, it's just to create more suitable conditions for people like us who are not fully awake, not completely fearless, to practice this full engagement. So in a way, at the beginning of a retreat like this, it might be good for us, you know, in our own ways to uh, honor that commitment, like before you go to bed tonight or even right now, just in your own words, with your own words, to commit to showing up for the experience that's actually arising for you in whatever moment. And uh, we can cultivate the perception that whatever's happening for us, whatever particular emotion or particular body experience, or particular dynamic at the retreat, you know, in terms of our roommate or getting food we're not used to eating or whatever little twist might arise for each of us at different times, that there, it's a teacher. And it's our job to engage this teacher to show up, to receive 
Some of you know about this term, this phrase, someone's lion's roar. It's used in the tradition, even way back at the time of the Buddha, they used this when a particular practitioner, <clears throat> you know, when circumstances were just so, and that person had a lot of clarity, and because of the particular circumstances, there was this appropriate opportunity to speak, for that person to speak about their practice. And they were just, you know, coming from that place of clarity, coming from that place of confidence, not staged, not pre-thought. They, sometimes people would say, oh, this is going to be somebody, this person's lion's roar, meaning they're going to speak their truth. And people want to gather, want to be there when someone's going to do a lion's roar because it's a powerful Dharma talk, even if it may be just one word or a couple sentences. And in a way, you know, the simplest and maybe most powerful lion's roar is in those moments when our heart, when our mind or anybody's mind or heart says yes to the way it is. Yes. Because the alternative is in one way or another, and often it's just slightly below the level of consciousness, we're closing ourselves off, distancing ourselves, disengaging from our life, disengaging from our body, disengaging from an unpleasant emotion, disengaging from, from the ordinariness or from the idea that this is going to go on for four days, or whatever might be there, whatever thought might be frightening us, or so we can, you know, not out loud probably, <laughs> but um, at least to ourselves, in moments of great confidence, moments of clarity, moments of real engagement, we can, you know, do our lion's roar for ourselves, you know, and, and literally in our mind we can say yes. There's a fun story I like uh, that Ajahn Sumedho tells. I've heard it in a number of his talks and then I, I realized, oh, it's in a book too. He has it written out in a little bit more detail. But once he was uh, seeing, spending some time with Ajahn Buddhadasa, a well-known, very well-known um, Thai meditation master and who has now died, since died, but Ajahn Tomato, a Western monk, was in Thailand. Oh, thanks. I'm not the only one, huh? And uh, had the chance to ask Ajahn Buddhadasa um, what would he want with him if he were in an if he were isolated on a desert island? And he said, just a little note saying, Pen Yang Neng Heng, which is a, the Thai phrase for a word that's used in the suttas, Tata or Tatata, which is sometimes translated as suchness or this is how it is now. And then Ajahn Sumedho, he goes on, he says, 
because this is a reflective thought. It's not a proliferating thought, is it? It's not analyzing, criticizing, figuring out, defining, or anything else. But it is using language to help us to look at something, to remind us. Because whatever you are experiencing now is what it is. It's an honest statement. People have said, you know, I experience memories from a previous life or some kind of unusual psychic experiences. And they want to know what does this really mean? What is the significance of all of this? Now, how many times, maybe not, you know, strange or unique psychic experiences, but how many times have we had, you know, a powerful dream or strange interaction with someone or we, you know, read something on the internet? We want to know sort of the underlying meaning. But the underlying meaning is, you know, it's like this now. So whatever awe or confusion, whatever desire there is for some kind of understanding, that's how it is now. Ajahn Sumedho says, and it is what it is. No matter if it's psychic or coming from another galaxy or a memory of yesterday or whatever, a mood or a feeling, what we are doing is recognizing it. We are receiving it. And it's the way it is, tata. Sometimes I like the translation suchness, even though it's a little archaic, maybe. But because it's pointing to something amazing in the experience's ordinariness. It's like... What makes ordinary experience ordinary is not being present. Or somebody once said, you know, we're bored only when we're not paying attention, not really there. So think about this, you know, if you want to work with this theme of engagement and getting interested in all the little ways over the next four days that out of habit, it's not even personal, out of habit, how we want to go on automatic, automatic pilot, cruise control, just getting by, just getting to the end of the sit, end of the day, to the next meal, you know, to the end of the retreat, to the retirement, to <laughs> whatever it is, our next vacation, dangling some carrot in front of our, and uh, and doing that dis disengaging, disconnecting, and literally dying, you know, because there isn't this engagement with the lived experience, the suchness, the way it is now. Ajahn Sumero continues, he says, this is not a way of pushing away any, this is not a way of pushing anything away, but of receiving it. Because if we have extraordinary experiences, then we want to make them into really fantastic things that are happening to me. And then we get carried away with being interested or fascinated or even frightened by some, by unusual mental experiences. If it is just the same old boring, repetitive thoughts or memories or negative states, it is what it is. So we have this way of reflecting using the statement, it is what it is. 
Tata is a word that points to, reminds us that we are not trying to make anything out of it, dismiss it, deny it, exaggerate or proliferate on it. Whatever way you are feeling now, whether you like it or not, whether it is inspired or depressed, right or wrong, sane or crazy, it is what it is in this moment. Now that's an honest statement. You can't beat that. such a strong conviction in our mind. Tomorrow I'll talk a little bit more about faith and things we can actually have faith take refuge in and the things that we tend to take refuge in that aren't so helpful. And one of the things we take refuge in that's not so helpful is, this isn't it. <laughs> I mean, imagine, just have a sense of how certain we are that this isn't it. This is not what I'm looking for. We're just, and we, it goes unquestioned. This disengagement or disconnecting or imagining that it's out there somewhere, not here. I love this phrase. I don't, it might be Ajahn Tomatoes. I just saw my note somewhere. It's not my phrase, but I like it. Patience is the supreme incinerator of unwholesome dhammas. Dhammas are just, you could think in the most general sense, they're experiences that arise. Patience is the supreme incinerator of unwholesome dhammas. So we have to change maybe our view of patience as being a kind of disengagement to just the opposite. Patience is a like a sense of the appropriateness of the moment, respecting the moment, not wanting, needing the moment to be different than what it is. So just uh, some instructions to begin to work with tonight and tomorrow morning uh, for those who might uh, like some instructions. Uh, you know, with this idea of engagement, it's amazing how, um, you know, just being encouraged to engage the present moment, how confusing that can be. So it's good to even be more concrete about that instruction. And one of the easiest ways to make this even more concrete is to talk about the body. So we are embodied creatures. There is this mind and body. And uh, in this realm of existence as human beings, our body's pretty gross, and not in a negative sense, but it's it's got weight. And uh, it's hard to miss, although we seem to be pretty good at it, not being connected to the body, living in the body but not aware of the body. So as a support for this commitment to engagement, like engaging the life that's being lived and seeing it, understanding it as a teacher for us, then often, most often for us, the gateway will be 
the body. And the full range of experience at sometimes, at times rather, the body will feel like a, a terrible prison where we're being tortured. And that's just how it is, you know, whether it's because we're sick or because we've decided not to move and we're in the middle of a sit, there's 15 minutes left, and the sensations are very unpleasant, or we're a little cold and we're at our wit's end, we just can't deal with it anymore, or we're a little hot and feeling claustrophobic in the body. And so there's so many different ways to be imprisoned by the body, and basically it's whenever the mind doesn't like it, it can't, sort of feels like it doesn't have any control, but really wants control, that it's like a panic attack. It can, it can build, the reactivity can build. And in that way, it becomes a prison and it can become torturous. So we can engage that experience because that's how it is sometimes. That's the way it is. Having a body, being embodied, sometimes it's really intolerable. It's really hard to bear. So the question is how to skillfully engage that moment. So it's not about like choosing to suffer. It's about the fact that it is that way sometimes for us. So what does skill look like when it's like that, when the body is hard to bear? What does it look like to be skillful? What would that look like? So you can ask yourself, like, I know engagement is good. Because I know disengagement, disengaging from my life, is a kind of death. That's it's the opposite direction we want to go. But I'm not quite sure how to engage this moment. So there can be some humility. But there is a body here, and right now the body's like this. And you see that even that honest acknowledgement is in the is the beginning of a full, honest wise engagement. And then the interesting thing is when our body is doing really well and feeling light and pleasant, easeful, we also don't want to engage the body. Have you noticed that when you're feeling good, when the body's feeling good, it's like that lightness and ease in the body, it makes us want to fantasize about things that we can do now, <laughs> that our body feels so good. All of a sudden, life seems more workable and, you know, maybe I'll get up and do yoga in the morning and then, you know, I haven't run in years, but I'll go run and, or whatever, you know, do some shoveling and, or whatever, however we disengage from the moment, which in the moment, the body's just Useful. That's how it is. That's just, this is the way that it is. What would that be like to show up for that as a teacher? That lightness and ease, the pleasantness, the vibration of health. What's, what's that like? Because we tend not to be there when the body's feeling good. And, and surprising, maybe ironic way, you know, in the same way that we're not there when the body's not doing so well. You might uh, like to remember the acronym that has been around for decades now as a way of remembering our practice. So when we're confused about engagement, how to show up for our life in this moment, you can use that acronym RAIN, um, R-A-I-N. 
And there's no end. I don't care if you learned it your first meditation class ever. There's no end to how the mind can refine its understanding of each of those four instructions. So the first instruction is to recognize it's like this now. <laughs> so just that. And the thing is, we're recognizing something profound about the mind. So the R in RAIN, to recognize, in some way, to some degree, we're recognizing this mirror-like quality of the mind. That recognizing it's like this now, it's a, first of all, it's already happening. The mind is already mirroring back, reflecting back the way it is. It's like right now, it's like this. So for each of us, it's like this. And notice that the mind, that part of the mind that can recognize it's like this, that knows it's like this, the mind's already to do that. It's not a burden for the mind to recognize. So it's more about you know, recognizing the recognizing, recognizing the mirror, the reflective nature of the mind. The mind is naturally reflecting the way it is. This is just what the mind does. So this is the first part of beginning again, engagement. It's just it's like the most amazing thing about this moment is that the mind is reflecting it back. That's truly amazing. You don't have to do that. I mean, it's an, in a way, it's like, uh, even though we've been conscious, in a sense, our, our whole life or most of our lives, it's amazing to discover that there is this wakefulness, there is this consciousness. But it's like uh, we always say, you know, people say, it's like a fish being oblivious to being in water. We're just unaware that there is this we, this is this reflective reality. That it's not just experience, it's experience being known. It's not just something tumbling forward, you know, life tumbling forward, whatever that would be. There's a reflectiveness, a knowing. And it's a great mystery. I mean, it, if you really get it as it is, it, in, a, in a sense, it makes your hair stand up on end, at least in moments. Like. So that's the R. And the A is this, uh, it's like having <clears throat> recognized, it's like this, and to whatever degree that moment, that reflective moment of recognizing it's like this, that it uh, it enlivens the heart, the body, the mind, because it's it's remarkable, it's amazing. Then we'll, naturally, the, the mind will want to sustain it, and it needs the A and the I to sustain that wakefulness, that mindfulness. And so that A is acceptance or allowing, right? Because if we, out of habit, become the doer who's going to manage the experience or something, then we lose it. Because the mind, the heart gets absorbed in being the doer, gets identified, becomes the doer, and it loses that reflectiveness, that knowing. It's like this. So instead of, like, to prevent, really, becoming the doer, 
the one who's meditating, the one who's concentrating, the one who's getting rid of things, we're learning to allow, to accept, to let nature move, inner nature, outer nature, to let whatever move. That's the allowing, the releasing, the letting go, the relaxing. So that's the A, acceptance. And then the I is in it helps to balance the allowing. So the allowing doesn't lead to, right, there's a shadow to allowing or to accepting, which is to disengage. Like if I'm accepting everything just as it is, look, what role do I have in the moment? So where there is a role in a sense, like something that keeps bringing us into the moment, and that's interest, investigation. It's a wholesome desire to know, to want to understand. So we call it interest, just because it's simple. Recognize, accept, interest. And the acceptance and interest, investigation, investigating, that's a dynamic that needs to be in balance and it sustains that bright, wakeful, reflective knowing. It's like this. It's like this now. Without that acceptance and interest in balance, then we generally get caught in thoughts or disengaged in some fashion. And then when we are sustaining, we recognize it's like this, and we're allowing it to be, and we're sort of staying interested in its unfolding because it's a dynamic. It's not just, I recognize it, now I'm done. The recognizing it's got to be an ongoing process, moment to moment to moment. So that's what the interest, it kind of keeps showing up moment by moment by moment. It sustains the wakefulness. And it's that sustaining presence that reveals the not the uh, re, like uh, I think Ajahn Chah uses this phrase, which I've learned to love and appreciate. It's been a really good teacher for me. He uses the reality of non-grasping. So that's the end. The re I know we have the reality first, but <laughs> non-grasping, non-clinging. The reality of non-grasping. The reality of non-clinging. It's a realization, like we, the mind awakens to the reality of not projecting any friction in the moment, not resisting, struggling. So it's realizing the reality of non-grasping, non-clinging. But that arises when there's some sustaining of that bright recognizing it's like this, and that sustaining happens because there's acceptance and interest, and that allows for the deepening insight into the reality of non-grasping. This is the, has the flavor of nibbana, of no greed, no delusion, no aversion in the mind, like a free fall. The mind, you know, our normal, what we call our normal mind way of being, it finds its ground, its boundaries, through the activity of greed and aversion and delusion. That's what gives me shape, makes me feel like I can recognize myself because I'm actually recognizing my patterns of greed, anger, and delusion. That's what is familiar. 
that's what gets reborn. You know, if you want to work with Buddhist cosmology as a, you know, as a wholesome concept, you know, it's not the person that gets reborn, it's the patterns of greed, anger, and delusion that have some momentum that get reborn. Often we think of it in a positive way, you know, well, I'll be reborn. <laughs> Somebody asked Trungpa Rinpoche, um, controversial but well-known Tibetan teacher who's now dead, um, about that question, you know, what gets reborn? And he said something like, your neuroses are what get reborn. So we can be grateful for our body as a way, you know, like a train ground, really see the visceral experience as we're moving about the retreat center, when we're sitting, when we're doing walking practice, when we're sitting at the dining room table, all close together, chewing our food, seeing, hearing, tasting, smelling. We can see this as a training ground to practice this, like, realizing the that this is being recognized that this is an experience that can be known this is the r and accepted and that interest can be sustained now it's a training because it's not our habit of course to, to accept or to sustain interest in life and life as it is the suchness the way it is normally what we're used to is sustaining interest and our fantasies, our thoughts, until they're not interested anymore, and then to find some other thought to sustain interest. Which is all, you know, exhausting, really. I like this line from the Buddha's teachings. He said, irrigators channel waters, fletchers straighten arrows, Carpenters bend wood, the wise master themselves. It's really pointing to this fact that, as Ajahn Sumedha says, we're not here to follow our hearts, we're here to train our hearts. Because, you know, whether you use the acronym RAIN or you have another way of remembering the practice, you know, we're here to train in that way and to, with humility, appreciate it's not the habit of the mind, our habit of our minds is to worry and to identify with the worry and to fear and identify with the fear and to want and identify with the desires to get lost in them and to proliferate around the worries and desires and the fears and the ideas of who we might become and who we were this is from david white uh, one of our great poets who's around these days that is around these days enough these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here. This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now. Until now. Is that nice? So, uh, Maybe we'll just stretch our legs right here in this room. And then we're going to sit for, we're going to do our refuges and precepts and sit for about 15 minutes. So feel free to stretch out for, so you'll be comfortable.
sitting for another 20 minutes. We'll end at 9.15 or maybe even a few minutes before. Now, some of you really love doing these traditional refuges and precepts. We do them in the Pali language on purpose um, because part of what uh, brings up a lot of energy, positive energy for us, is having some sense of the millions of people before us, women and men all around the world, different places, different times, who have been inspired by these teachings and did their best to take them up. And people even right now in different places. And so we can uh, remember the lineage. This is a lineage of people who are interested in being awake. And we can take support from being part of that great community. And our physicists tell us these days that the idea of locality and uh, space and time are concepts, not realities as we imagine them to be. So whatever that momentum, that human momentum is, this, this sort of momentum to awakening, it's either here or now or it's nowhere. So this is not just like, uh, you know, we're sort of being nostalgic about people who practiced in the past, there is a force that we can tap into. And the thing that prevents that force from having its effect is the strong belief that there isn't a force that we can tap into that can be supportive of our practice. And you can call it whatever you want. You can call it love. You can call it God. You can call it, you know a wisdom stream, but there's no harm in opening our hearts, opening our mind, our imaginations to the possibility that there's something good and supportive that's available. And uh, people who are interested in the Buddhist teachings, this is our particular way of, a particular ritual for opening to that force of goodness, that stream of wisdom. So we first acknowledge our historic teacher, the Buddha, by uh, chanting the Namo Tassa, that first line, three times, just the Pali. And then we're going to do the three refuges three times, which is traditional, just in the Pali. We're basically taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, three times. The Buddha, not just the historic person, but it, the Buddha is a symbol for this wakefulness, that's the Buddha ultimately, is the wakefulness here and now. Dhamma is the way it is that we've, I've been talking about tonight. And Sangha is a word that uh, sometimes is casually used to talk about spiritual community. More accurately, it's those who understand the teachings, who have realized the fruit of the teachings. But even more Specifically, Sangha are, are the beautiful qualities that arise when wakefulness is waking up to the way it is, when a human mind or human heart is integrated, engaged in this beautiful way, then how that person responds is beautiful. We call that Sangha. The beautiful expression of a human life 
a beautiful response in a moment is what Sangha ultimately is. And we take refuge in those beautiful responses that we have, that other people have, because it's beautiful, it's skillful, it makes the world a better place. And then we do the five precepts for lay people. We undertake the training to refrain from harming living beings. We undertake the training to refrain from taking what wasn't given. Here it says stealing. We undertake the training to refrain from sexual activity. It's kind of a old-fashioned um, translation to say sexual intercourse. So it's really here together on this retreat. Like uh, Casey was saying, <clears throat> not to be tight about looking down on the floor, but normally, you know, as social beings, we connect with each other's eyes and we communicate a lot just through our body language with each other. But we're just like not having to be forced to be a social being for these four days. So we're giving everybody their space. And that's also true, you know, we can't help but be sexual beings, each of us in our own particular way. But for the purposes of this retreat, we're not going to be sexual beings. We're, I mean, we're still going to be sexual beings, but we're not going to be expressing that sexuality in any outward way. And that's our commitment to each other. And that's just, that's a real uh, gift to not be projecting that on each other. Because, again, we know it even if we're not out loud talking, you know, trying to pick another person up or something like that. So we're just... Uh, putting down that sexual activity for the duration of the retreat. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech, harmful speech, or telling lies. I undertake the training to refrain from intoxicating the mind in ways that lead to carelessness. So we'll just do the Pali for these, but just so you get a sense of the meaning of the words that we'll be chanting. We'll do the chant, and then we'll sit for about 15 minutes together. Don't worry about the pronunciation. Just listen to the other folks and do the best you can. Chami, 
พาลติพัทธาเวอัมมณีสิกาพดังสมาริยามีอาตินาดานาเวอัมมณีสิกาพดังสมาริยามีอาบรมาชายาเวอัมมณีสิกาพดังสมาริยามีมุสาวาดาเวอัมมณีสิกาพดังสมาริยามีสุราเมริยามัจจพมารธานาเวอัมมณีสิกาพดังสมาริยามีอิดามิสิลังมะกะฟาลัญาสะพัชายโยโอภดาร์มาซีดพลีสวิสิตดาร์มาซีดดอทออร์กสลาชดอนเอ